So, good evening and welcome. Um, I imagine a lot of you were here this morning already. Is there anybody here that was not here this morning at all at either session? Show of hands. All right, a few of you. All right, uh, I'll just do a very quick um, introduction of myself and the ministry. My name's Thomas Bailey. I live in Exeter, and my wife and I have been married for 31 years. We have two adult children who are both married and two grandchildren. Uh, we also have a, a hobo cat named Monty that comes around every now and then. I didn't mention him this morning. But um, I'm here as, as part of Creation Ministries International. We're an apologetics ministry. Now, that does not mean we're apologizing for anything. In fact, we are unapologetic in our belief that the Bible is the Word of God. No, it comes from the Greek word apologia, to mean, meaning to uh, give a, a reason, defense, or to give an answer. And it comes out of 1 Peter 3.15 that I mentioned this morning. People are going to ask questions about your faith. They're going to ask challenging questions about things to do with Genesis quite often. Things that, you know, modern science says couldn't possibly have happened. But we're going to look at some evidence that uh, backs up what the Bible says. And we have offices in seven different countries around the world. Our Canadian office is in Kitchener, Ontario. And I mentioned this morning, we're an information ministry. So we have scientists that do a lot of research and write articles and we produce videos. And uh, our website, creation.com, is a great place to go for all that information. If you have a question about something to do with Genesis, something scientific you're wondering about, you can go in there, use the search engine, and, uh, and come up with a bunch of articles. I also mentioned this morning our email newsletter, InfoBytes. That's uh, a way we have of getting a little bit of our information to you by email. And uh, I, we passed around some sign-up sheets this morning uh, that looked like this. I won't pass them around again tonight, but if there's anyone who missed that this morning or if you'd like to get hold of our email newsletters, um, you can uh, find those sign-up sheets uh, on the tables at the back, out in the foyer, uh, at the break a little bit later on. Now, I want to play a little game with you. And this game is called, What Do You See? I'm going to show you some pictures, and I want you to go ahead and yell out what you see in the picture. Okay? Here's the first one. What do you see there? See the guy doing push-ups there? Buddy's in the chair? Right? How about now? See the doorway in the background, right? Guy's actually against the wall. You know, see, this is the same picture, but we look at it two different ways, and, and we see two different things, right? How about this one? What do you see here? Two faces. Anything else? A vase, right? Again, same picture, but we see two different things. Here's another one. What do you see? Somebody see the woman's face there? See the tree and the birds? Right? Again, same picture, and we're seeing two different things. Okay, last one. What do you see here? I'm, <laughs> I'm going to let you off the hook. This is not like the other ones. It's not an optical illusion, okay? This is a messy room, pure and simple. All right? We see that. But let's suppose you walk into this room for the first time, and you see what it's like, but you, you weren't there before, you don't know how it got that way, we can ask the question now, what happened here? How did it get to be this way? Was there an earthquake? Was it burglars? Did the grandkids come for a visit? Right? That's the kind of thing we run into when we look at things around the world. Uh, this morning we talked about interpreting evidence. We can look at something the way it is in the present, but if we want to have some idea of how it got that way, we have to ask the question, well, what happened? Because we weren't actually there to observe that. So, for example, if we see something like this, you know, you've probably seen pictures of Grand Canyon. Maybe you've actually gone there. We see the layers of rock. We see the erosion. We see all of that. And we say, well, what happened here? How did it get that way? This morning I talked about uh, how we use interpretations on, on evidence. And there's a difference between science or what we could call operational science, 
which is all about making observations, running tests, and it's what we can see and observe uh, and repeated tests in the present. But then sometimes we try to use those uh, systems, those, those methods, to find out something about the history of that thing. How did it get there? How long ago did it arrive in that layer of rock? And that's where we get into what's sometimes called historical science, or really it's just history. Right? When we're talking about creation and evolution, we're not actually talking as much about science as we are talking about the history that's been attached to the scientific evidence in the present. And everybody interprets the evidence in a different way according to whatever their worldview is. And I mentioned this morning, everybody does this. So we can look at different, we can, we can extrapolate this and make it, make it larger. We can look at bigger evidence around the world. We can look at all of those many very, very thick layers of sedimentary rock that's all over the world, and they're full of fossils. We look at that and say, what happened here? How did all of that get there? And, and there's two basic explanations out there. One, uh, did that all get there by millions of years of slow and, and gradual processes over deep time? Or... Was it something much quicker and more catastrophic than that, like something like a global flood, for example? Well, it's really got to be one or the other. Because you see, the, it, it, it can't really be both. It's got to be global, whatever it is, because the evidence we're talking about is global. And it can't be both because if those layers of rock full of fossils are evidence for millions of years of slow processes, then they can't also be evidence for a global flood. On the other hand, if those layers are represented or evidence for a global flood, they can also be evidence for millions of years. It's kind of got to be one or the other. And so what will happen is uh, anybody that wants to allow for the possibility for uh, millions of years, they pretty much end up having to deny that a global flood ever happened because we can't have both. So in talking about a global flood, of course, we remember what we read about in the Bible, about Noah's flood. And if we do a, a little summary of kind of what went on there, we know that uh, the fountains of the great deep burst open, and there was 40 days and 40 nights of rain. We know that the waters prevailed upon the earth for a considerable amount of time, and all the mountains even got covered in water. And we know that at day 150, the waters had receded just enough for the ark to come to rest in the mountains of Ararat. But it then took another 220 days after that for the waters to fully recede to the point where the land dried out and Noah and the animals were able to disembark. Which means that Noah's flood really lasted about a year, all told. That's a lot of water over a long period of time, and can you imagine what that might do to the landscape, right? We See, I mean, we know the devastating effects that water can have, even on a smaller scale. Let's say a dam bursts, for example. That can do a lot of damage very, very quickly. Or some of the tsunamis that we've heard about in recent years. Or talk to somebody in B.C. from last year. One of our speakers lives in the lower mainland of B.C. where all that flooding was. A lot of devastation there very quickly, but at a much smaller scale than what you would expect in a global flood. Now, I don't know if you've ever pictured this before. Nobody really knows for sure what the, the world looked like before Noah's flood. But imagine a, a particular landscape, and, uh, and then the floodwaters come along. You get all that rain. Uh, the waters of the great deep burst forth. All the, the water prevails on the earth. And then eventually those waters uh, recede, and a lot, but a lot has changed. You're probably looking at a very different landscape after the flood. Looking at probably some tectonic plate activity, mountains being formed, new ocean basins, maybe new continents being formed. Right? Probably a very different landscape than what happened uh, before the flood, because we're talking about a lot of water, a lot of devastation. Now, some have suggested that maybe Noah's flood was really just a local flood. We looked at this verse this morning. Remember what it says here? It says, The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. 
the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Now, a cubit is the distance between a man's elbow and the tip of his finger, about 18 inches. So if what this is describing is a local flood, then it must have looked something like this. Doesn't really make sense, right? Because water seeks its own level. It wouldn't make sense for the waters to be above the mountains in one place and not somewhere else, especially when it basically says all the mountains under the sky. There's a lot of questions we can ask, actually, if Noah's flood is a, supposed to be a local flood. For example, what do we do with this uh, scripture here in Genesis 9? Where it says, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Do you remember that part at the end of the flood? God made that promise never again to destroy all flesh with a global flood. And he, and he used the rainbow as a symbol for that promise. But see, if what's being described here is a local flood only, has God broken His promise? Because we know there's been a whole lot of local floods over the years. Some of them more very, very recently, like I mentioned. If, if God is describing a local flood there in those chapters in Genesis, then that means He's broken that promise thousands of times over. Other questions we could ask. If it's a local flood, then why did no one need to build an ark? Why couldn't He just move? Go to a different region. He had plenty of time. And why did He need such a big ark? I mean, surely a smaller boat like a yacht or something would have been enough, Right? And why did no one need to bring all of those animals along? If it's in a local area, they could have migrated to a different region. There were some probably already in other places. Why do you need to transport all those surviving animals? Even the birds. I mean, birds can fly great distances, some of them hundreds and thousands of miles in a given year. Surely they could have migrated away from the floodwaters if it was local. Other questions to ask, why did they need to live on that ark for just a little over a year? You ever known a local flood to last that long? Yes, people in B.C. were evacuated, but they were home within a couple of weeks. Over a year, that's quite a long time for a local flood. And did the entire population actually live in just a small area? Because remember, God promised not to destroy all flesh, right? I mean, obviously, I mean... We're talking about something happening here approximately 1,650 years after creation. So that's a significant amount of time for people to have to potentially migrate to other areas. Did they really all live in that little, little area? And why is it that there's so many flood stories around the world? Not just the one we read in the Bible, but there's hundreds, actually about 500 or so different flood stories from different cultures in different parts of the world that bear a remarkable resemblance to the Noah flood story from Genesis. Stories that come out of uh, the Middle East, China, uh, the South Sea Islands, Hawaii, uh, South America. All of these stories that come out of all these different cultures around the world that have similarities to the Noah flood story. That there was divine judgment, that there was a, an ark or some way uh, of escape provided, that a, a certain family was saved. And this chart shows the similarity in all those stories from around the world. Now, does it make sense that all of those different local cultures all came up with their own local flood legend that really is very similar to that one from Genesis? Or does it make sense that there was one huge cataclysmic event that lived on in everybody's memory afterwards? Because we know Noah and his family got off the ark and then they had descendants. And then after a few generations, those descendants got scattered at the Tower of Babel and they started migrating to different parts of the world. And they would have had knowledge of that flood story directly from Noah and Shem who were actually on the ark. And so they would have been able to take that story with them to different places around the world and pass it on and those stories would have changed a little bit locally over time, but that similarity remains. Now, one of the questions we often run into when we start talking about Noah's flood is the ark. How big was that ark? Maybe you've seen a picture like this somewhere. And uh, 
Please forgive me. I don't want to upset anybody if you're using something like that in Sunday school. It's a cute little picture, right, of this little ark. And, and we look at that and we go, how can you get all the animals on that, right? Well, these make great coloring pages. But unfortunately, pictures like this are not biblically accurate. No, what's described in the Bible is the ark was 300 cubits long or about 450 feet long. It was 75 feet wide, 45 feet high, three decks, a massive amount of room on this ark. Some of you have heard about that famous ark encounter down in the U.S. where they built something uh, very much like this. It's huge. And that's what's described in Scripture. Give you uh, an, uh, an analogy here. Probably most of us know what a standard railway boxcar looks like, roughly how big that is. You see trains going by. Well, someone's done the math on the ark and said, well, this will actually hold the equivalent volume of 522 of those railway stock cars. That's a lot of space. In fact, he's done, this fellow did the math on the volume and the floor space in that ark and compared that to what was on board. So, of course, that's the next big question. What all passengers were on that ark? Skeptics will come along and say, well, how can you, there's two million species around the world. How can you possibly have two of each of those two million species on that ark? Well, what they're failing to notice is what the Scripture actually says. It doesn't actually talk about species as we understand it. If you were in the first session this morning, You'll, you'll know we talked about variation within a created kind, as mentioned in Genesis. So you start with something like a wolf or a dog-like kind, and over time you get variations within that kind. All different kinds of dogs and wolves and so on. And so what we know from the Noah Flood story is there's reference to two of each uh, created kind put on the, on the ark. So not necessarily, not every one of every type of dog, but two of that created kind, which would then we get variation and adaptation after that. And we wouldn't need every type of creature. There's different ways that plants could survive it, on the ark as, as food and elsewhere in log mats that would have survived the flood. Insects wouldn't need to be on the ark. Because the scripture tells us that land-dwelling, air-breathing animals and birds were on the ark. Well, insects don't breathe air in the same way that those land-dwelling animals. When you look at the when we look at the uh, the, the Hebrew term, it's talking about living, breathing things with the breath of life in them. Insects don't really qualify for that, and there's other ways they can survive. They could survive on the outside of the ark, on those log mats, vegetation. Uh, but I'm actually going to point out in a minute, there actually would have been room for them all on the ark if they had taken them. And of course, you don't need fish. Some of them obviously uh, died in the flood. Some survived. Well, there's a whole lot of things you don't need to put on that ark. And so the fellow that wrote this book, his name is John Woodmorapi, Woodmorapi, I think. And he's calculated that there's probably about, at most, 8,000 created kinds represented on the ark. Two of each of those, seven of some. And so you end up with about 16,000 animals on that ark of all different types. And we look at that and we, take a, we calculate how much space we would need for those animals of the average size. And we build, let's say we build cages for each one of these. And those animals in cages would take up about 42,000 cubic feet or the equivalent of about 14.4 of those railway stock cars. Calculate the amount of food needed for all those animals for a year. It works out to only about 15% of the total ark's volume. And then the water, same deal, only about 10% of the total ark's volume. So we calculate all that out, we find that the food, the water, and the animals themselves, even built in cages, only takes up the equivalent space of about 144 railway stock cars. It's only around a third. It's a lot of space left in that ark. For, you know, you could take the animals out and exercise them for a while. Lots of room for that stuff that results from eating all that food, by the way. In case you didn't have any other way of getting rid of it, there's room for it. 
So when we look at that, we find out that that ark had plenty of room for all of those different animals. Now, of course, that we ask the question now, well, how big were these animals, right? Some were big animals, some were small animals. At the average size was probably no more than the size of a sheep. And that's what those calculations are based on. Some researchers are now saying the average size might have been closer to the size of a rat when you consider all the smaller animals. But then when we depict the ark in our ministry, we usually depict this. I don't know if you can see that. Scripture tells us that every air-breathing, land-dwelling animal was on the ark. And there's indications in Scripture that what we know of as dinosaurs actually did exist. They weren't talked about, they weren't called dinosaurs in Scripture, but they were there. And so if God created those and all those land-dwelling animals uh, were put on the ark, that means dinosaurs had to be on that ark. we got materials that indicate that plenty of evidence worldwide that people have coexisted with dinosaurs at some point in time. That's a whole different talk. We can dig into that later. The idea is that God would have put two of each created kind of different types of dinosaur on the ark. And somebody said, well, how do you get those big guys on there? Somebody made this uh, scale model here. Even if you take some of the biggest sauropod dinosaurs, if you were to eliminate the floor of those three, three decks, in the front, you still have some room there. But you don't have to take the big guys. In fact, actually, most dinosaurs weren't that big. A lot of them were quite small. Some of them as small as a chicken. The average size of all the dinosaurs that we know about was probably the size of about a buffalo at most. But here's another thing we know about dinosaurs from studying their fossils. We look at their bones, we find that they went through a growth spurt. That for the first few years, I mean, we all know that dinosaurs all started out as eggs, right? No, I didn't have to take eggs on, on board. That's not what I'm suggesting. But for the first few years of their life, in a sauropod case for like this, this is the growth uh, pattern of an apatosaurus that's graphed there. First few years are fairly small, maybe only a few feet tall. But then, after a few years, they, they do like what your teenager do. They shoot up. They grow really fast. They eat everything in sight. This growth rate indicates that during that growth spurt, an apatosaurus would grow an average of about 5,500 kilograms every year. That's the size of an elephant every year. That's, that's a massive amount of growth. And then they get to a certain age and they sort of level off and you have those big dinosaurs. Now, here's the thing. If you're Almighty God and you know that these animals are going to be on the ark for a period of about a year, are you going to send the big granddaddies that are going to take up all the room? Or do you send a couple of the juveniles and then time it in such a way that when they get off the ark, they're about ready to hit their ghost spurt and they can shoot up and they can go replenish the earth. I think Almighty God is smart enough to do that. So really, you don't even need the biggest dinosaurs. You just need two of each created kind. And of the big ones, you can take the juveniles. So let's go back to this business here. Why does it even matter if those layers of rock are millions of years old and slow and gradual, or is it a global flood? Well, we read about the global flood in Scripture, right, in the Word of God. So if the global flood actually happened, then we can look at that and say, well, there's evidence that the Bible really is true. And if the Bible is true when it talks about a global flood, then we can say it's probably, it must also be true about the existence of God. There is a God. And if there is a God, it's also true about when it talks about judgment, sin and judgment, and there's accountability to God. And then we get into the need for a Savior. The whole reason for Jesus Christ coming to the earth is to offer a way for us to be reconciled to God and be saved from the penalty of sin. But if there's no judgment, obviously that isn't necessary. So all of that kind of fits together. On the other hand, if those layers of rock are evidence for millions of years of slow processes, and then we read about a global flood, well, we could conclude that the Bible isn't true. That's just a made-up story. And if the global flood isn't true, then maybe it's not true when it talks about there being a God. And if there's no God, then there's no judgment, there's no accountability. We don't have to worry about that, and therefore no need for a Savior. So the whole gospel doesn't need to be there anyway.
And what we found is many people that begin to disbelieve what Genesis says about the global flood and other things find it a lot easier to disbelieve other parts of the Bible. So it really does matter how we look at this. I mentioned this morning there's another correlation between uh, the Bible as uh, Genesis as real history and the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us, For as a man, by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Paul's telling us here there was an actual Adam who lived. He sinned. Because of Adam's sin, we die. That's the curse that comes from Adam's sin. That's why we need a Savior. And of course, uh, in Christ, he was referred to as the, the last Adam. The one that, that pays the price for that sin and reconciles us to God. So, there's got to be some, some kind of a connection there. What happens, though, if we try to put millions of years into the Bible's history? And a lot of people try to do that. Um, we've got to fit it in somewhere if we're going to allow for that. And what normally happens is theologians will try to slot those in somewhere in those first six days of creation week. One method, for example, is to say that maybe they're between the first two verses verse 1-1 one, one, and verse 1-2, that there was a gap of, of millions or billions of years in which uh, Lucifer fell. And then God, he corrupted the earth, and then God judged the earth in a global flood, and that's where all the fossils come from. And then creation week happened, and then Noah's flood later on was local. There's problems with this. There's no mention in Scripture about Lucifer's flood. It's really speculation on the part of somebody that wanted to try to get millions of years into the Bible. And then we find this other problem that I mentioned this morning. If you've got all those fossils on the earth before Adam comes along, before sin, then you've got a record of death and disease and bloodshed happening for millions of years before sin. Meaning that death is not the result of sin. And so the gospel doesn't make sense that way. That's the, that's the detrimental effect, trying to add those millions of years in here, which a lot of people don't realize when they start thinking this way. Others try to spread out the millions of years over those six days, but it's all the same effect. First, it, it basically tells us that what the Bible says is not what it plainly says, so it kind of undermines the authority of the Word of God, and it places that death before sin. So we run into some theological issues when we try to do that. This morning I mentioned what Jesus said about Noah's flood. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Jesus understood the Genesis flood and Genesis to be real history. So did many of the apostles and other New Testament writers and many theologians since then up until uh, fairly recently. But see, not everybody agrees with Jesus here. It's a fellow by the name of Keith Mascord from uh, Australia, former seminary professor. He wrote a book talking about, or an article, I should say, about talking about Noah's flood. And he wrote this. Moreover, whenever the story is referred to elsewhere in the Bible, the writers appear to take the story as factual. Jesus appears to have accepted the story in this way, Luke 17, as we saw. Jewish and Christian interpreters have also mostly taken it that way as well until the past few hundred years. So he's admitting that Jesus and many theologians have understood the Noah flood story to be history. Then he says, the big problem with this is that the Noah flood story is almost certainly not factual. Where is he getting that? Why would he say such a thing? Now he goes on to explain, the only reason a plain and church history long reading of the Noah story has been overturned is that scientific discoveries have made that necessary. So he's listening to the scientists that are positing that those layers of rock and the fossils are millions of years old, and he's saying, well, that means the Noah flood story can't be true. Do you see what he's done here? His authority here is not in what the Word of God says. He's put his authority in what the scientific community says about history. We want to be really, really careful about where we put our authority. Now, why does he say up until a few hundred years ago? Did something change? Well, back in the late 18th century, a fellow named James Hutton 
a geologist, came up with this notion called uniformitarianism. Mentioned that this morning. The notion is the present is the key to the past. And so we look at processes in the present, like slow and gradual sedimentation, and the assumption was that it's never changed. It's always been like that in the distant past. And so if we measure that, then that means it must have taken millions of years for those layers of rock to form. Now, this idea was championed by a fellow named Charles Lyell, a geologist and lawyer, who wrote a book called Principles of Geology, a book that heavily influenced Charles Darwin, by the way, in his views about the age of the earth, and then he applied that idea to his notions of evolution. Now, Lyell had a bit of an agenda. He wrote this in a, a letter to a friend of his. He said, I am sure you may get into quarterly review what will free the science from Moses. For the science, he's talking about geology. See, up until this time, people were looking at the layers of rock full of fossils and understood that as evidence for Noah's flood. And Moses wrote Genesis. He wrote about Noah's flood. So he's saying if we take on this idea about the millions of years, we can get people away from thinking about what Moses wrote and get them to accept a different history instead. Do you think he succeeded at all? Anybody ever see something like that before? Right? A chart of what's known as the geologic column. Got all these thick layers of sediment and there's been dates put on those layers, hundreds of millions of years and so on because the idea that one layer laid on top of the other slowly over deep time. Right? This is the interpretation that we talked about. And so when we look at a place like this and we see all those layers of rock and we've been taught what Lyell put forward about the millions of years, we say, well, what happened here? And we might think, well, it must have been millions of years of slow processes. Maybe you recognize this picture from this morning. We can look at these layers of rock and we ask the same question. What happened here? How did that get there? Well, we actually know the answer because eyewitnesses have affirmed Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980. And those layers of rock were formed progressively uh, on a series of single day events, each one forming those layers of rock very, very quickly. We've got eyewitness testimony of what happened there. And we know how those layers of rock formed very quickly, not over millions of years. In fact, flume testing has uh, shown us also that if you take uh, a bunch of jumbled up different types of sediment all jumbled together in fast flowing water and, and run it through that, what will happen is the grains will sort themselves by size and weight and you'll wind up with actually multiple layers of different types of sediment sorted out like that going from side to side, not one after the other like we've often been taught. So lots of water, lots of sediment, you can get multiple layers rather quickly. And then we go back here and we go, okay, what happened here? <laughs> right? We, we look at the layers. We can look at the canyon itself and ask the same question, what happened? And we'll probably hear a story. If you visit Grand Canyon, you'll hear the notion of millions of years of slow erosion and so forth. Or we can look at this canyon and ask the same question, what happened here? Again, we know the answer. Part of those processes at Mount St. Helens. When mud flows came down from the mountain about two years after the original eruption, they carved out a canyon through those layers also in a single day. And the river formed later from rainfall. See again, eyewitness testimony, we get a different interpretation. You see, here's an example of a canyon that's formed quickly that we've actually witnessed or somebody has witnessed and taken film. Are there any other examples, I wonder, of canyons that have formed quickly? Another place in Washington State, near Walla Walla, back in the 1920s, a farmer had some irrigation ditches, and they got blocked up. So he wanted to clear the blockage. So he ran a whole lot of water through those ditches rather quickly to try to clear that out. So what ended up happening is that ditches, that a ditch that looked something like this probably at first, because of all that water and erosion, that ditch turned into this in six days. A little ditch turns into a canyon in six days. You didn't need millions of years. All you need is a lot of water flowing really quickly and you got that erosion. So we've seen canyons form quickly, but nobody's actually seen a canyon form over millions of years. That's just an assumption about the past. Nobody's actually witnessed that.
Now, one of the questions we ask in science, of course, is what would we expect to find after uh, certain circumstances? So what might we expect to find after a global flood? Well, one thing we could expect would be massive amounts of sediment. A lot of water, a lot of sediment being laid down quickly. And we see that all over the world. Very thick layers of sediment laid out, some of it expanding over complete continents. Now, they're not always straight and flat like that. Quite often, we find multiple layers of sediment that have all been bent rather sharply the same direction, and yet there's no sign of cracking. Well, how does that work if they, they form slowly and gradually? Surely, they, you know, they would have solidified by the time they got bent, and there should be signs of cracking. But in many formations, we find uh, that that hasn't happened. Now, you can heat rock to a point where you can bend it, but then there'll be signs of elongated crystals and, and other evidence that that's what happened. And we don't find that in a lot of these cases. Great example here comes from the Kaibab Upwarp near Grand Canyon. Multiple very thick layers of different kinds of sediment that have been uh, labeled at hundreds of millions of years old, or the, the bottom ones there. But they're all sharply uplifted and bent the same way with no signs of cracking. Again, how does that happen? If the bottom layer is 500 million years old, how do you uplift that and you don't get any sign of cracking? But what if all of those layers were laid down rather quickly and were still somewhat soft when they got uplifted? That could happen and then you wouldn't have any sign of cracking later after they got lithified. Something that might happen in a large watery catastrophe. Now, over the last few decades, geologists have admitted that there's a lot of evidence in the geology for uh, you know, catastrophic processes, that it couldn't just all be slow and gradual. So they're starting to get away from that. Um, in fact, uh, some have admitted, you know, we look at things like this. I showed you a, a, a fossilized tree trunk this morning. Well, we can look at coal measures all over the world, some in Canada and Britain, and we, keep, we find these upright trees and stumps that are sitting there in these coal measures that are supposed to have taken hundreds of millions of years to form. So, so why is there a tree trunk there? How does that work? A fellow named Derek Ager, uh, an expert geologist, once wrote this. He said, if one estimates the total thickness of the British coal measures at about uh, 1,000 meters, laid down in about 10 million years, then assuming a constant rate of sedimentation, it would have taken 100,000 years to bury a tree 10 meters high, which is ridiculous. So here's a, here's a geologist admitting that, you know, it, it, that couldn't have happened over the course of hundreds of thousands of years, right? Now, please understand, Derek Ager was not a creationist. He didn't believe the Bible, but he's admitting the science that so does not support that slow and gradual. There has to be some other explanation for this. So he came up with a different idea known as neocatastrophism. He said, I maintain that a far more accurate picture of the stratigraphical record is of one long gap with only very occasional sedimentation. So the idea goes something like this. Some catastrophe happens and lays down a bunch of sediment in a layer all at once. And then millions of years go by with no massive sedimentation. And then another catastrophe lays down another layer or, or layers like that. And then more millions of years and then, right? So the idea is that the, the millions of years then is not evidenced by the layers of rock themselves. Instead, the millions of years are in the gaps between the layers where there's no evidence. Right? That's his idea. We get all these catastrophes, but we still keep the millions of years. Why do we need the millions of years? Because he believes evolution. And if you believe in slow and gradual evolution, you've got to have millions of years. So you've got to find it somewhere. But let's examine his idea. Suppose a catastrophe happens and we get layers of sediment laid down quickly. And then millions of years goes by, you're going to get erosion over time. And erosion is generally not even. And then you get another catastrophe. So now you get some more layers laid on top of that. So we should see formations like that everywhere with those gaps, right? But what we do see actually looks more like this. Very flat layers, one on top of the other, very thick, and no signs of erosion in between them. Very little, if any, sign of uh, soil deposits. 
Another great example of this is uh, from Grand Canyon again. That arrow points at the line between the Coconino sandstone and the Hermit Shale. Two different types of sediment, one on top of the other, looking very flat. In the middle there, we're told 10 million years went by in that gap between those two layers. And look how flat that is. Where's the sign of 10 million years? So if the millions of years aren't in the layers of rock themselves, and they're not really in the gaps between the layers, where's the evidence for millions of years? Now, geologists now rely heavily on something called radioisotope dating, or radiometric dating. This is a, a rather technical sounding dating method that become quite popular, and you might have heard about it. Uh, and it's used to date rocks, not the sedimentary rocks, it's used to date igneous rocks between those, those sediments. Not to be confused with carbon dating, which is used on fossils. They're similar, but they're different methods. Basically, igneous rock has isotopes in it. And some isotopes are radioactive, meaning that they decay or they lose particles over time. And when that happens, they turn into a different isotope that tends to be more stable after a while. And so we call those the parent and the daughter isotope. The, the beginning isotope before decay and the daughter isotope that's different after decay. And so we look to these different isotopes and, and uh, researchers will use uranium and lead or potassium-40 turns into argon-40 over time. There's different isotopes they can look at. And we know the known decay rates under regular circumstances for these isotopes. We've been able to measure that and extrapolate that in the lab. So the notion is that you take a measure, a sample of rock, you measure the amounts of each of those isotopes in the rock, and, and calculate that out as a ratio, and then apply the known decay rate to that ratio. And you should be able to calculate the age of the rock since it was formed from that. Makes sense, right? Now, think about this for a minute though. Suppose you walk into a room and you see an hourglass sitting on a table. Half the sand on the top, half on the bottom. How much time has elapsed? Yeah, you're scared to say, aren't you? See, it's like that room before, right? You just walked into the room. You see, you see this the way it is right now. But if you weren't in the room before that, you don't know some things. You have to make assumptions. You have to assume that... that Things have been, been flowing constantly for the last half hour, that it didn't get clogged up at some point, or that it maybe it was laying on its side until a couple minutes ago and somebody just put it up. There's a lot of things we don't know about that hourglass because we weren't there to witness what happened. And it's the same with radioisotope dating. When we take those samples of rock, we have to make assumptions to assume that we know the amount of each isotope that was in the rock when it first formed, and nobody knows that. Usually it's assumed there was none of the dust. This has been done several times. One of them happened at Mount St. Helens. In the early 80s, a lava dome formed there after the original eruption. And then a few years later, some geologists took samples of that lava dome that had formed a few years before and sent samples of that back to two reputable labs, one of them in Canada, to do potassium-argon dating. Didn't tell them where they came from. And they did their testing and came back with estimated dates of anywhere between 340,000 to 2.8 million years. It's quite a range. That actually happens a lot in this kind of dating. You get all kinds of different results and you have to pick the one you think makes the most sense. But that's rock that's no more than 10 years old since it formed. Now somebody once said, well, you can't use potassium argon dating on young rocks. Think for a second. If you can't use it on young rocks of known age, how can you trust it on a rock you don't know how old it is? So there's a lot of issues with that. Uh, you, and we, we've got DVDs on that that uh, explain that much more in much more detail. Other things we could expect to find after a global flood. How about evidence of a whole lot of dead plants and animals buried rapidly? We call them fossils. Find them all over the world in all those multiple layers, all different kinds of things that have been buried rapidly and preserved that way. And this morning we talked briefly about what it takes for fossilization to occur. 
Some of you may have heard of Dr. Philip Curry. He uh, wrote a book a few years ago in which he said, fossilization is a process that can take anything from a few hours to millions of years. It's pretty precise, isn't it? Now, of those, which of those do you think he may have observed at some point? Maybe a few hours, days, hours, whatever, right? Weeks, maybe. But nobody has seen it happen over the course of millions of years. That's another assumption. In fact, geologists or paleontologists are admitting now more and more because of examples we find in the fossil record that fossilization requires rapid burial. Otherwise, they decay and you don't get a fossil. And we find, I showed you one or two examples this morning. Uh, in Charles Darwin's day, he didn't believe that soft-bodied creatures like jellyfish could possibly become fossils because he thought it was a slow process. And yet, different parts of the world, we find things like this. A whole bunch of jellyfish fossils, very well preserved, and they look pretty much exactly like jellyfish that we find today. And yet the fossil's supposed to be half a billion years old, which means it didn't change. It's something we call a, a living fossil, and it runs against that idea of, of evolution over time. Here's another interesting one found more recently. This is an entire school of 257 fish that had been fossilized in formation, all facing the same way, all together in, in a limestone slab. One of the researchers said this. He said, I've never seen this kind of preservation. I can't picture a three-dimensional school of fish sinking to the bottom and maintaining all their relative positions. That makes no sense to me. It doesn't make sense at all. That doesn't normally happen. But it could make sense if something happened to suddenly overwhelm that school of fish and bury them rapidly in that slab. Something like a large flood, for example. Now, when we start talking about fossils, sometimes people will ask, well, where are all the human fossils? Noah's flood happened. We don't know how many people were on the earth at the time, but where are all their fossils? Why, why don't we find them? We'll do a quick breakdown of the fossil record 95% of the whole fossil record is actually shallow marine creatures like jellyfish and other things that live at the bottom of the ocean. That kind of makes sense because if there's a global flood, what do you think is going to get buried first? It's the stuff that can't move very fast. It's already down there. Some of it obviously did uh, survive uh, in some way or other. God preserved them some way, but much of it did become fossilized. And then of the remaining 5%, it's mostly plant matter. So it's really only, uh, down, we're down to the last quarter of a percent of the whole fossil record that involves vertebrates or things that have bones in them. That includes fish, it includes mammals, dinosaurs, etc. And most of that quarter percent is only one bone that's been found. Ones with more, you know, we think of those little skeletons that are partially there. Those are the ones we think about. Those make up a very tiny percentage of the whole fossil record. Now, when we look at the fossil record, we can see sort of a generalized burial you know, uh, record, right? There's a lot of commingling of different types of creatures. There's mammals buried in the same layers as, as uh, dinosaurs, for example. But you can kind of see a progression there. You get the shallow marine creatures and then get other marine creatures. You get amphibians, you get reptiles, you get dinosaurs in certain layers. And then we go up and up and we get into mammals and then uh, the human fossils tend to be in the very top layers, what few there are. So in a global flood scenario, who do you think is going to last and survive the longest? And we'd be building rafts, we'd be climbing onto logs, we'd be doing whatever we could to survive the floodwaters. And so in a global flood, it's quite likely that humans that died mostly drowned as opposed to getting buried in sediment because they would have survived longer. And so the uh, human fossils we do find are most likely uh, post-flood from other things like glaciation, other local floods, and other local things like that. So what we see in the fossil record really does actually support a general burial from, from the flood. Other things we'd expect to find would be large-scale erosion. You get a lot of sediment, a lot of water. Uh, receding later, receding off the continents into new ocean basins, you get a lot of erosion. And we see that kind of thing. Here's a, a graph of uh, Grand Canyon. 
You can see it on the right-hand side there. But above that, there's thick layers of sediment, and there's a whole lot of that thick layers of sediment, about 2,000 feet of it, missing. It's been eroded away. And that's not a slow and gradual process. We see those layers of sediment across whole continents, even across from one continent to the next, and we see this kind of erosion happening as well. So if we think about this in a, a global flood scenario, as the waters recede, the continents are being pushed up, new ocean basins are happening. You've got a lot of water flowing off, taking a lot of sediment with it. And we only have to look to the continental shelf to find out where it went. And then later on, as the uh, waters recede, the flow becomes a little more channelized and we get uh, different features like canyons and water gaps and mountains and things like that. Now, Another question that often comes up is, well, where did all the water go? And where did it all come from? Well, Jacques Cousteau years ago told us the answer to that. Anybody remember that guy? He pointed out that if you take the, uh, the geography of the world and you flatten out all the Earth's surface, the mountains and the ocean basins make them all the same elevation, you end up covering the entire surface of the Earth with water almost three kilometers deep. That's a lot of water. All we really had to do in a global flood scenario is redistribute that water from whatever the landscape was before. There's the Pacific Ocean. There's a bunch of it right there. Sometimes think, well, how can you possibly have a water above all the mountains like Mount Everest? You didn't have to have water above Mount Everest because it's a post-flood mountain that got pushed up in the latter stages of the flood. We may not know what the landscape of the uh, earth looked like exactly before Noah's flood. We know what it looks like now. And there's some that suggest, both creationists and evolutionists, suggest that at some point there may have been one large supercontinent. And there's even scripture to suggest that all the uh, land was in one area and all the water was gathered in one area. We can't really get dogmatic about that, but there's a possibility there was one big supercontinent and then that got broken up over the course of the flood. A lot of tectonic plate activity probably involved in that flood. And uh, some researchers have done, uh, have done research on continental drift. They've looked at the uh, rifts in the ocean basins and seen the magnetic field going back and forth, reversing. Looks as if that, that shift, goes, that spreading has perhaps been very, very quick, which would cause a global flood don't have time to go into it tonight, but the leading creationist model for causing Noah's flood right now is called catastrophic plate tectonics. Please understand it's a model. We weren't there. We look at the evidence and we come up with a model that seems to fit what the Bible tells us and it seems to fit those things, right? We don't know all the specifics for sure. At CMI, we say we hold on to scripture tightly. We hold on to models lightly because some new discovery may may causes us to, to rethink things a little bit, just like anyplace else in science. But we do know pretty much what the, uh, the landscape looks like now after that cataclysmic flood, all those continents and oceans. Other things we could expect to find after a global flood would include an evidence of a population restart. Right, you go to eight people, and so everybody else is gone, we gotta have to restart the population. And if we look at ancient civilizations around the world and taking into account uh, some of the issues with some of the chronologies that have been written and look at some of the historical documents, most major civilizations have records going back only uh, about two to two and a half thousand years before Christ, post-flood, post-Babel, all kinds of fits with the Bible's history. And what about population growth? How do you go from eight people to 7.9 billion in about 4,400 years or so? Now, the current growth rate of world population on average has been calculated at about 1.1%. So if you start with 1,000 people in a year, you should have 1,011. And so that grows exponentially over time. It's been calculated. What rate, what rate of growth do you need to go from eight people to 7.9 billion? since the time of Noah's flood. Works out to only 0.5% per year. So there's been plenty of time to have that population growth. On the other hand, 
what if humans have actually been around for hundreds of thousands or even a million years since what we're told about the first early uh, human hominids? What if we've been around that long? Well, if you apply that number to a growth rate of only 0.01% per year, you would end up with 10 to the 43rd power people in the world. 10 with 43 zeros. I don't know what that number is called, but it's massive. Where is everybody? If we've been around that long, where did everybody go? So the numbers actually fit biblical history better than they do the evolutionary one. You see, we can say that the evidence for a global flood is really everywhere around us. It's, it's kind of like you can't see the forest for the trees because so, the evidence is so huge. But interpretations matter, right? How we interpret the evidence, that's, that's a big deal. Here's a new story from, uh, from the UK a few years back. It said Mars was once hit by a supermassive mega flood of truly biblical proportions. Interesting phrase for a uh, secular newspaper to use, right? Basically, they, they found evidence on the surface of Mars that looks like there was a massive flood there around 3 billion years ago. Well, what's interesting is there's no liquid water on Mars. The atmosphere and the temperature it can't sustain liquid water on the surface. There may be some evidence of a little bit of liquid in ice in, in, the, uh, in, in the rocks there, but you don't have any liquid water evidence. There may have been water there at one point in time. So it's interesting that they look at that and they say there's evidence for a global flood on Mars where there's no liquid water. And then you look at all the evidence for a flood around our world, all that geology and all that water, and they say, oh, no, that was just a local flood, if anything. Interpretations matter. In fact, about 50 years or so ago, or back in the uh, late 1940s, F. Sherwood Taylor said, I myself have little doubt that in England it was uniformitarian long ages geology and the theory of evolution that changed us from a Christian to a pagan nation. Do you think Charles Lyell succeeded in getting people away from thinking about biblical history, accepting deep time, and getting people to doubt that the Bible is true? We looked at this first this morning. Peter tells us that in time's going to come when people are just going to deny that a global flood ever happened, even despite all the evidence that's around us. The same Peter who told us to be prepared to give an answer when people question us about our faith. That's where the word apologia comes from, from this verse. Somebody's going to ask you, why do you believe what you believe? And they're going to ask tough questions about dinosaurs and Noah's flood and fossils. And we often don't know how to answer those questions because we haven't been equipped. And unfortunately, uh, just saying the Bible says so isn't good enough for a lot of people. Right? Because they believe science has disproven the Bible. So unless you can show them some evidence, there's a lot of folks who won't even consider what the Bible says unless you show them some other information. That's why we're an information ministry. It's why we want to equip you with information on an ongoing basis because you're not going to remember everything that you saw and heard here tonight. Certainly not well enough to be able to repeat it and explain it later. You've got to do a little work. And so I mentioned some resources this morning. Uh, we have some others that are specific to Noah's Flood. A uh, new book we have called Biblical Geology 101, examining the geologic record according to what we know about the flood and, and how that all makes sense. A great kids book we have is called The True Story of Noah's Ark. The, not the little bathtub ark thing, but it's basically a telling of what does the Bible tell us about Noah's Ark as an actual historical event. It's a very popular book for young families. I mentioned radiometric dating, a great DVD by Dr. Jim Mason, all about the different radioisotope dating methods, carbon-14. Uh, rather technical. You probably want to watch it more than once, but uh, very in-depth information on all the problems with those dating methods that we're told are supposed to be really, really accurate. And another book by Michael Lord is called Deep Time Deception. Again, talking about the problems with dating methods and other things in geology that have led us away from understanding uh, what the Bible says. And one of my favorite resources, I mentioned John Wood Morropy, did all that research on the ark. It's in a book called Noah's Ark, A Feasibility Study. Everything you always wanted or never thought to even ask about Noah's, Noah's Ark, he's done the research. It's really detailed. 
Uh, and it's going out of print, I'm sorry to say, so limited time now to get hold of this great resource. And I, of course, this morning I mentioned our magazine, Creation Magazine, you can get hold of that. We still have the subscription forms available uh, in the foyer afterwards at the break. And uh, we also have a technical journal called Journal of Creation. We do have peer-reviewed technical journals. Now this one's only available in a digital form now, but uh, you can get hold of that as well. It's a term subscription for anybody that really wants to dig into the, the highly technical stuff. And uh, of course you can still sign up for the email newsletters as well and, uh, and connect with us that way. And of course don't forget that wonderful website. All right, now I'm trying to remember how I'm supposed to uh, finish off. I think we'd, do you want to give us a word of prayer? Maybe give some housekeeping notes, or um, we'll we'll uh, we'll come back after a break. And anybody wants to stay, we'll do a Q and A session in about fifteen minutes or so. Uh, 